Hi, it's me, Ana Paula Picasso, and this is a quick message to tell you that the Merger Markets Today podcast has a site where you can find the latest news about emerging markets. The site is entirely free to read, with no paywalls and no subscription. But to bring you all this amazing content is not cheap. Me and my team of writers would really appreciate your donation. To donate, just click on these show notes or you can go directly to the site emergingmarkets.today and click buy me a coffee. Hi and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso and this episode will be about financial inclusion. From payment infrastructure to digital wallets and the token economy. I'm here with Emmanuel Daniel. He's a global thought leader in the future of finance. He's also an entrepreneur, the founder of the research company, The Asian Banker, and author of the book, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here. Hi, Emmanuel. Welcome to Emerging Markets today. Thanks for having me on your show, Anna, and uh, very happy to be able to share some of my thoughts uh, from my book, uh, which is the future of finance. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, definitely we're going to talk about more about your book later on in the episode, how the idea came about. And one of the reasons I invite you to the podcast, um, I've been reading The Asian Banker. I know it's a research company, but you guys have a really good website with news. You have videos. You're talking about your book. What interested me, one of your videos, you were talking about financial inclusion. And I always try to bring people here to the podcast to talk about financial inclusion in emerging markets. But you had a very controversial opinion of financial inclusion. You said the financial inclusion is not as benevolent as it seems. <laughs> so what do you mean by that? It's not as benevolent as we like to think it is. Yeah, so one of the theses in my book is that for so long as um, you know, we think of financial services as something that needs to be put on platforms and monetized, uh, the whole idea of financial inclusion uh, is a lie uh, in that uh, model. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, uh, many of the uh, players in financial inclusion, uh, what they are trying to do uh, is to bring the unbanked and the underbanked uh, into um, the traditional banking industry, the, the banking industry that everybody else um, is in right now. Um, you know, where else technology, where it's taking us, uh, is creating a whole new, more equitable financial services uh, industry. Uh, but um, many of the players in the fintech community, in traditional banking, whenever they say the phrase, um, you know, we want to, uh, we, we are doing this because of financial inclusion, uh, the model just doesn't allow them to do that. Okay. Now, um, after I had um, made this assertion, I actually do get a lot of pushback uh, by people who say there are variations of uh, why the way in which I think. But but this is my basic uh, you know thesis, which is that in so long as the model is to set up a venture capital 
uh, driven uh, or funded uh, platform, uh, and then to onboard millions of users, just the way that Facebook and uh, you know Twitter tries to onboard everybody, uh, and then uh, to monetize them, uh, then the idea is to actually create a financial burden uh, on people uh, who are unbanked at the moment. Um, you know, and, and the thing is that if you want to talk about real financial inclusion, there are lots of wonderful models that have worked. Give some examples of these models that worked. Yeah. So, of course, everybody knows about Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, right? And, and in fact, if you go to Bangladesh today, it's not just Grameen Bank. It's also Brack Bank. There's, you know, and there are uh, tons of um, you know, uh, non-NGOs, uh, gov non-government organizations, um, where they have um, built a financial system, a financial model from the ground up, uh, which is that both the assets and the liabilities uh, exist uh, at the grassroots levels, okay? And Grameen Bank, um, Grameen Bank's model uh, was to lend to groups of six women uh, in a small community setting, and they create the governance structure, uh, which even if it's a $100 uh, loan, um, the, there's a governance structure that makes sure that it's repaid. Now, in the Grameen Bank's model, uh, the interest rate was as high as 30% uh, per annum. Right and um, you know twenty eight to thirty percent, uh, and someone who's not in community financing or in in uh, you know reaching the unbanked will say, oh, that's a you know exorbitant um, uh, you know interest rate and so on, um, but that was the interest rate that could sustain the business because the risk le level is very high, um, you know the liquidity is hard to generate uh, and so on. But then, when as the wealth gets created, they then have the liability side of the of the bank's business, okay, Grameen Bank's business, which then feeds back into the asset side. So it becomes a self-sustaining model, okay. Um, you know something? When exactly this model was applied in India, um, you know, in the 1990s into the 2000s, the first, the first 10, 10 years of the of the new millennium, um, there were. Unlike Grameen Bank, where the the business was funded at the grassroots, uh, in the Indian model, it, they were funded by venture capital companies. Uh, lots of Indians from the U.S. flying back and hoping that they can uh, they can uh, you know make a make a big buck because it's the interest rate in in lending to the poor is high. It's thirty percent. You know, so here you are, you're a venture capitalist. You you you. Uh, this is a very profitable model. Now the difference was that. Uh, in the Grameen Bank model, uh, they were lent to small groups of women in stable local communities, uh, static communities. In other words, they are villages um, that where people live there forever, right? Whereas in the Indian model, uh, in many of the states where there was, uh, you know, uh, microfinance was was uh, taking off, uh, they were they were lending to itinerant workers uh, for migrant workers into the cities and they actually they live on the fringes of the cities they are from somewhere else uh, and so on and they lent to mostly men uh, and many of them living alone and so on right and 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 because it's venture capital funded um, multiple venture capital driven microfinance um, players uh, went in and um, you know and lent to the same category of customers in other words uh, the same uh, borrower would have Multiple, uh, multiple borrowers until it came to it came to such a point 
that uh, the 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 the, the, the microfinance companies had to agree between them uh, which days are their collection days. So yours is Monday, mine is Tuesday, and so on. Uh, and it got so bad that it started um, a series of suicides in in some of these um, suburban areas. And the state of Andhra Pradesh uh, banned uh, microfinance, you know, and um, um, and and uh, banned it to totally. Okay. And then when I looked at the number 10 years later, uh, when they banned microfinance, where did the borrowing go back to or where did the lending to the underbank and unbank go to? It went back to the traditional moneylenders, you know? And what is the magic of the traditional moneylenders as against a microfinance company or, or a venture capital-driven uh, lending institution? Just, uh, just to clarify, when I say the traditional moneylenders, what do you mean? The, your your loan sharks in in the local community it, uh, the percentage went up to you know like it was used to be fifty percent and then it went down to like thirty percent when when the microfinance players uh, were were active and then it went back up again to fifty percent right of the lending in 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 the state of Andhra Pradesh um, you know and the thing is that uh, and the reason is because believe it or not whether you like them or not. The traditional loan shark is actually an active, stable part of the local community, um, you know, and and he knows who is, he is lending to. Although his loans are exorbitant, but uh, the rates are exorbitant, but but his uh, recovery rate is good because um, you know his his mar his margins are are good enough for that, you know. So so the thing is this that that um, and guess what happened to Bangladesh. Uh, today, its total GDP, per capita GDP, has increased above India. Yeah, I had um, uh, one of the previous episodes I had with Prava Health. They, uh, we were talking about exactly that. Because Bangladesh is not a country that we talk so much. In the 70s, the Nixon era, um, you know, the, the, the Nixon presidency, the, uh, uh, someone in the presidency called Bangladesh a, a, bas a, a basket case. Case comes from, and it had no chance of of pulling itself out, um, you know, of the of the uh, strings on its shoes, um, you know, and and um, uh, and what what made the difference? Uh, it was the ability to be able to create a sustainable financial infrastructure at the grassroots level, okay, and then enable uh, communities to take step by step. First, buy the bicycle that can bring fish from the next village, fresh fish. And you know, uh, and and command a higher price, and then send your kids to school and and all that, right? And so um, the the sustainability of the Bangladeshi uh, grassroots community uh, is a world class um, uh, example. Now the thing is this: um, when you try to transition this into the digital age, uh, and again, the microfinance platforms are funded by venture capitalists who measure their effectiveness by the number of people they have onboarded, even if the onboarding is done at a very low rate. Now, I've checked this, um, that there is not a single microfinance uh, initiative, uh, digital initiative anywhere in the world, Indonesia, Brazil, um, where the interest rates is less than 24%. Uh -huh. So I didn't know that. That's interesting, yeah. So the thing is this, the, the venture capital-driven initiatives are not going to, you know, go on a discount on the interest rates because that's exactly what they're after, you know. And, and, uh, and the whole idea, the whole proposition, the whole message of uh, 
uh, or the whole goal of digitizing uh, microfinance and um, and banking to the unbanked uh, is to bring it bring uh, banking services to them cheaply. Um, you know, and they're exactly the, the the target community that will never get it cheaply uh, because it's funded by venture capitalists who need to recover their investment costs at some point. Okay, so um, now there are banks uh, like Bank Rakyat in Indonesia, for example, uh, which has done an amazing job, uh, and they run two platforms. One is for their traditional banking business, and the other is the microfinance. A lot of the microfinance uh, business is offline. Uh, or you know it, it's a batch solution that 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 gets online from time to time, and so it depends a lot on the on the local community to even have staff, um, you know, and and to have um, you know uh, credit profiling uh, and, and so on, uh, and and there it's very very sustainable, and because it's not driven by venture capitalists, uh, they're able to pass on the savings and the and the better rates down to the local community. And then, of course, it's also guaranteed by government. By what you explained, the, the VCs are the problem here. It's more nuanced than that, obviously. The VCs, you know, enable technology, um, you know, so that, that bit, uh, I get it, okay? But but um, the, if the whole idea is to, uh, is to onboard the unbanked on the traditional banking industry, um, you're not going to create value. You're just going to create debt, and you're going to create a capitalist-induced, um, you know, profitable system. Now, the thing is this: um, I also say in my book that the platform industry is increasingly uh, disintegrating. Okay, and and it's becoming uh, increasingly personalized. So that's what we we need to start thinking a lot about um, now. The, the personalization of finance is driven a lot by, um, you know, tokens, cryptocurrencies, uh, blockchains, um, you know, and there the work is not done uh, by onboarding, um, you know, millions of customers onto a platform, but by, but by, by plugging in uh, local communities uh, to uh, supply chain networks and so on, right? So, uh, and also creating sustainable community currencies, which is a form of blockchain, where within a close community, um, you know, within a close community, you can create value and transact and exchange value, um, you know, to, to because the in order to um, in order to monetize uh, work that is generated within the community. So there's greater and greater personalization uh, taking place, which is a lot more of an effective model uh, than this industrial level um, platformization of financial services. Yeah, yeah, I think the key here. For you know, banking the unbanked is to provide value, not just debt, because it could be a lot of consequences, like you mentioned in India, and all that. But um, yeah, we can talk about more about the personalization of finance a little bit later on. We talk about your book, but another thing I'm very interested to know your thoughts is about innovation, especially in the payment infrastructure. The payment infrastructure, yes, yes. place you mentioned is Africa, and you think there will be the future of the innovation in payment infrastructure. And obviously, when you have a good payment infrastructure, the impact is not just in the financial sector. You can have, you can have an impact on e-commerce platforms, for instance, popping up, and retail, etc., 
So how do you see that developing in the next few years, in the next decade? You know, payment today has been reduced uh, to a messaging uh, platform, okay? Um, if, uh, you know, payment is in, in its essence is a message. Um, and, um, and, what is a mess- and, and what is a payment is a message being sent between uh, two points or two people. Uh, and if today you can send a message for free, uh, th- uh, theoretically you can send a payment for free, um, you know, because it's a message, um, you know, and and it gets captured um, on either side of the transaction, and um, and then you balance your books uh, depending on whether it's a token or a or an account that is uh, updated and so on. Um, now, given how simple payments has become today in Africa, there's any number. Of um, you know uh, money transfer organizations MPOs right and uh, and they're also becoming cross border very very easily because it's a message um, you know if you can send me a message on WhatsApp um, I should be able to send you a payment on WhatsApp and WhatsApp actually has uh, you know projects underway in India in in Brazil uh, where they try experimenting with payments they're not bringing it back to the US because uh, they they are afraid of um, you know getting caught in regulatory issues. But I know in Brazil they they try to integrate with PIX, which is the central bank payment system. So what's happened, PIX? There? there are several parts to payments today. Um, payments used to be uh, about saving and wealth, uh, and and the interest that you get on payment and the and the compounded interest uh, generates wealth for you. But uh, uh, payments today has moved from traditional bank accounts. To digital wallets, uh, and the the proposition in digital wallets is no longer wealth generation; it's actually utility, um, you know, and and it's utility in the digital world, uh, and that is why the, the the digital wallet industry is growing in a compounded at a compounded rate, something like twenty five percent a year compounded. Okay, it is not anywhere close to traditional bank accounts yet, but bank accounts are being uh, eroded. Dramatically, uh, even in the U.S. right now, uh, you know, with the collapse of I know, especially in the past couple of years during the pandemic, in Brazil we grew a lot. Digital wallets grew a lot because people couldn't go to the bank or couldn't go out. And also, um, we had a recent article on emerging markets today site where we talk about the rise of digital wallets in Indonesia as well. So it's something that's been happening. Yes. So, um, you know, and, and, and digital wallets have different forms. And the most basic is basically uh, the digitization of a bank account, which is uh, if you and I have, have the same bank uh, accounts, the, the bank will credit you and debit me or debit me and uh, debit you and credit me. Uh, and, and they do that cross-border as well. Uh, at the other extreme, you have tokens. Uh, which is, um, you know, if it's a crypto token, um, you just need to send me a token. You don't even need an intermediary. So uh, between the two extremes, there is a whole there are there's a whole range of different um, digital players, uh, and all of them are dependent on how the local community is organized. So if the local community is organized uh, allow, around a lot of super apps where uh, people are living their everyday life, uh, buying their newspapers online, being you know paying for food and stuff, uh, you know, then then whoever has the payment infrastructure for that super app 
uh, dominates that local community. Uh, and then today, there's also a huge community that is being created in the games and the metaverse, um, you know, universe, right? And and in in uh, you know, and NFTs and so on. It doesn't really matter what the assets uh, are like in the digital world, but there there's a new idea of assets being generated uh, in the digital world, uh, collectibles uh, and all that. Uh, and you know, in during the pandemic. In the Philippines, I, I came across a community um, that that was generating income uh, gaming. Uh, you know, I and, know, I know it's great. Yeah, yeah. I'd let you tell tell the story, but yeah, and and uh, well, they were gaming on uh, on a platform called Access uh, Infinity. Um, you know, and uh, and they were gaming twenty four hours. In other words, uh, you know, Papa Bear is gaming in the morning, and then Mama Bear is the afternoon, and then you take over, cousin takes over. Uh, and it's non-stop, and it paid the bill because there was a bank, uh, Union Bank in the Philippines, that was willing to um, give them the exchange for for fiat versus um, you know uh, crypto, uh, and uh, and uh, they could go out to the village and buy food, um, you know. So that was a real economy that was uh, that is already exists. I've heard of cases of people bought a house just playing playing the game. But they didn't last long, did it, Emmanuel? Yes. Kind yes, of. Correct. That's correct. So most people made money in a shorter period of time, maybe one year, two years, and then it crashed. The whole, that, that's the fault of the economics of the of the platform of the of the token, um, you know, of the token economy, uh, where uh, up to that point, okay, in the during the COVID period. It was all about, um, you know, a Ponzi sort of scheme where someone is willing to pay more for your token. Um, that's attributed to the problem of I, what I call the token economics, okay? The, 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 the token technologies economics at that point during COVID, which was that uh, the token was only of value. In fact, any form of crypto has exactly the same economics problem that, uh, that makes it difficult to get to the next stage of the evolution of crypto and, and tokens. Uh, and, and this is very important, especially as we move into the metaverse. Um, tokens today are, gener are, 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 are considered of value as long as someone else is willing to pay more for your token uh, than somebody else. So it's, uh, it's an inflationary uh, model. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually a Ponzi scheme for goodness sakes, right? Um, now, the thing is that what is what hasn't happened to tokens uh, is that it hasn't gotten off uh, this inflationary, uh, uh, you know, economic model uh, to a utility economic model where a token carries the value that I want to carry because I have to carry it to somebody else. Um, you know, so so for example, I you know when I send you a message, uh, the message itself has no value. The the va the value is in the message. Uh, it is something of value that I want to. Uh, communicate to you. Um, so until tokens become real payments uh, instruments, where the value is not exactly the token, but but the message in the token uh, that it needs to be carried, um, you know, you will see this uh, Ponzi type, um, um, you know, token universe that exists. So we need to get out of that. Um, and even that, in order to get out of that, you 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 still need to see how the access in infinity. Uh, village players uh, have been evolving since uh, because they all landed with tokens anyway. They're still there. They're still there. Uh, and now they're thinking, they're talking about, uh, they're talking about interoperability. 
um, you know, uh, what other assets can you buy on in the in the digital world and looking for um, things of value in uh, the digital world. Okay, and and that's a good um, evolution, meaning that the, the the value is no longer the token itself, but uh, for something else for which you will give, uh, you know, you'll give the token in exchange. Um, and, um, you know, the technology will keep continuing to evolve, um, you know, and, and so on. I think this is a good hook to talk about your book now, Emmanuel. The great transition. Personalization of finance is here. So what's your book about? How did the idea come about? I am uh, causing the industry uh, to be able to visualize uh, what happens uh, as the platform industry starts to um, starts to degenerate uh, and and uh, information and data and um, you know and 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 uh, value uh, is increasingly in the control and the hands of the individual um, you know and I'm saying a lot of things in there because I'm saying that uh, the the operating principle of, of the platform industry is starting to change, uh, you know, and that people have more control over what they do. Now, there's a huge battle underway on that front. Uh, there is the Web3 model and there's the Web3.0 model, which are two different things. One is very blockchain-centric and the other is intended to continue giving, um, you know, uh, empowering uh, the, the, the platform industry, the HTTP world, uh, as we know it, uh, you know, and, and in, to some extent, ChatGPT, uh, you know, prolongs the life of the platform industry for a while. Uh, but the, the, the CEO of ChatGPT himself um, is, is from the crypto world. What's his name again? Is um... Sam Altman, yeah, you know. So, so, um, so that um, the, the industry is evolving and there are two, if not more, uh, forces uh, trying to determine, uh, you know, uh, how information will be uh, protected for the individual and how individuals can eventually create uh, their own, um, you know, platforms. That means everyone is a platform rather than you have to go to a platform uh, to participate in a community. So as this takes place, finance also becomes individualized, um, you know, and, and, and the role that intermediaries have to play uh, will change dramatically. Um, what's interesting about the uh, about the crypto world and and the decentralized finance world is strangely enough is still dominated by intermediaries, right? So there's a great level of centralization. Uh, you know the, the platforms themselves and uh, uh, you know provide the liquidity, uh, provide the whales, uh, provide the uh, you know the the platforms for transactions and so on. Um, and right now in the US. Um, the the you know the the legislation not the legislation but the the court cases the um, you know the subpoenas that are going around from the SEC to the various platforms uh, is causing will cause the platforms to seriously think uh, about a model where uh, they can decentralize uh, and give ownership to the individual um, you know, in, uh, in, 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 in managing their transactions and exchanging value to each other. Because what the SEC is saying is that if you are a platform and you, um, you know, sell tokens with the promise that the token's value will go up, uh, it means that you're a security. And therefore, um, you know, we need to regulate you as a security. And, 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 uh, 
and the decentralized players are saying, no, we're not a security, you know, and so that's a huge... I always say, I always say the future will be decentralized, but we are not there yet. I think there's uh, probably material for another episode. So, so my book is about the the uh, that journey uh, that the industry is taking to decentralization. Uh, it's not a, a straight route. Uh, and then there's also what should the current fintechs and the current uh, the the banks today? How should they uh, make sense of this journey? Uh, you know, there's lots happening every day. You just need a sense of direction where it's heading, uh, and then and then evaluate every development against that. So what I'm saying to the banks is, just think about this, right? Your products tomorrow are not going to look like your products today. So so long as you're digitizing an existing bank account or a digit existing mortgage business and thinking that you're going to take that into the digital space, uh-huh. that's exactly what's not going to happen. Uh, you know, so I'm challenging them. Uh, I'm challenging them to to think of a time when when the world will not be yeah. you know as they see it to be today. Um, you know, so and I say to them that the most beloved of the banking products is the deposit account, and the deposit account um, is going to be transformed dramatically. And and that transformation has started with, I, I, you know, the book came out in uh, September last year. Um, and SVB start, you know, happened in, in March this year. Sounds like a very interesting subject. I'm definitely going to go and check out the book. And where do people find the book? Online, Amazon? Just visit me on emmanueldaniel.com, uh, my name, yeah. daniel.com, and then everything is there. My comments are there, the, the table of content of the book is there, and then that leads you to Amazon and half a dozen sites where you can get it. Yeah, so people can go and buy online and put yeah. all the links in the show notes and thank you, thank you Emmanuel I think it was a very very uh, insightful conversation into the world of finance and also you know the great transition the great transition we are in at the moment so thank you thank you